Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, November 14th. There's a famous moment in New York City history. It happened to be about baseball, but that's beside the point. It was the last game of the season in 1951 when either the Brooklyn Dodgers or the New York Giants would go to the World Series, right? The game ends when a Giants player named Bobby Thompson hits a home run that became known as the shot heard round the world. And the excited Giants radio announcer, a guy named Russ Hodges, starts shouting and repeating, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. Yeah, like that. Well, that's kind of what happened with some Democrats on Saturday night when the word came down that the Nevada Senate race had been called for Catherine Cortez Masto, which meant the Democrats retain their United States Senate majority. Some Democrats I know started calling and texting each other to say, the Democrats won the Senate. The Democrats won the Senate. And there it was after nine o'clock on Saturday night when not that many people are thinking about politics, right? But words started getting out, and Democrats were texting and tweeting and calling each other, the Democrats win the Senate. The Democrats win the Senate. Yeah, kind of like that. But all the cheering was disaggregated on social media. If they were watching one of the Democrats' favorite TV channels, MSNBC, They saw it happen in real time. Their elections analyst, Steve Kornacki, was talking about the state of the Nevada race when all of a sudden... There it is. That's the check mark. Catherine Cortez Masto declared by our decision desk the winner of the Nevada Senate race with Catherine Cortez Masto's victory in the Nevada Senate race. Democrats now have control of the United States Senate insured. They have their 50 seats with Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote that guarantees Democratic control of the Senate for the next two years. So there it was. And in a midterm election that was supposed to favor the party out of power, the Democrats kept control and may even add one seat compared to before, depending on how the Georgia runoff comes out on December 6th. So let's talk about it with Time Magazine political correspondent, national politics correspondent, Molly Ball. Hi, Molly. Thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Molly, can we start with Nevada in particular, then we'll go on to what might happen in the Senate as a result of these elections. How did Catherine Cortez Masto hang on to her seat in a year when the Republicans were trying hard to win over Latinos in the big Las Vegas area and had a shot at flipping that seat? Yeah, you know, and I was I, I was a reporter in Nevada myself for several years uh, and went out there to cover this race. And it was really a microcosm of all of the national forces that I think we saw at play across the map that brought us to this scenario where, as you said, the, the Democrats kept the Senate uh, and, and could even add to uh, their, their number of seats, depending on how Georgia goes. So, you know, out in Nevada, there's a lot of economic hardship. Uh, 
people, voters clearly do not feel like things are going well. Uh, they've soured on President Biden, despite him having won the state a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, as you said, Republicans made a very strong effort to target the large Latino population. We don't know exactly what uh, role they played in this election yet, but estimated to be about 20 percent of the vote. And Catherine Cortez Mesto herself is, is the first Latina, only Latina in the Senate. Uh, so, you know, she was facing some real headwinds, but she had a few things going for her. Uh, number one, uh, that ability to personally appeal to Hispanics, I think, was important. And the ground game uh, that was backing her up, the so-called Reed machine uh, created by the late uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reed that has continued to give the Democrats a strong infrastructure in Nevada. Uh, number two, uh, the, the abortion issue, she emphasized that a lot. She also talked a lot about uh, democracy in January. 6th. Uh, her opponent uh, was a was an election denier who had really spearheaded Trump's uh, attempts to overturn the 2020 election in the state. And she emphasized that uh, uh, very hard. And, and, and I think that was the, the third thing really going in her favor was her opponent. Uh, her opponent, Adam Laxalda, also a former Nevada attorney general, was a, a, a sort of a hard right Trumpist candidate, not a, a model moderate, like many Nevada, successful Nevada Republicans have been over the years. Uh, and uh, he did not really try to, to move to the center. Uh, both candidates refused to debate. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, as we saw in so many races across the map, voters were ready uh, to hypothetically elect a Republican, but not this Republican. They looked at their choices in this election and said, you know, this guy's just too far out there for me. And uh, I'm going to stick with the status quo. And earlier in the weekend, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly had been declared the winner in his very close reelection battle against a very Trumpy election denier named Blake Masters. Then Cortez Masto held her seat in Nevada against Adam Laxalt, who, as you say, had also embraced the big lie. Nevada and Arizona, two of the ultimate swing states in America right now, and two of the states where the big lie crowd had most focused their accusations. Um so you say it was partly about that, and maybe some additional evidence that it was meaningfully about that is that on the same uh, day, I think just hours earlier on Saturday, the governor's race in Nevada was called for the Republican, and also the race for secretary of state there went to a Democrat over an election denier who would have been the administrator of the state's future elections in the role of Secretary of State. So people really seem to split their ballots, uh, at least in Nevada, and the election denial, big lie, democracy aspect seem key. That's right. And I think you see that in Arizona, too. Nevada and Arizona both had uh, election deniers running for secretary of state. And the candidate in Nevada, Jim Marchant, was sort of the ringleader of this national group of Republican secretary of state candidates uh, whose whose whole proposition to the electorate was, I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal elections, more or less, right? I'm going to run these elections. Uh, in a way that uh, makes it uh, impossible for, for Republicans to lose, more or less. And, and voters really don't like the idea of politicians taking democracy out of their hands, taking their, their, their right to vote and choose their own leaders away from them. So we see, as you said, this, this ticket splitting going on, uh, this attention being paid to these normally quite sleepy Secretary of State races where voters really noticed uh, what the candidates were talking about 
in these races that had to do with election administration, you know, and, and in Arizona too, right? We, we have that that Senate race, all, race has already been called. Uh, the Secretary of State's race has been called. Uh, the governor's race still hanging by a thread uh, between Katie Hobbs and Carrie Lake. And whichever way that goes, that is further evidence of ticket splitting because uh, obviously a lot of voters voted for, for Mark Kelly, uh, who then may have already also, also voted for Carrie Lake. And that's why that race continues to be close. Yeah, though Carrie Lake is such a big election denier that it would go against the trend. It would be an exception to the trend if she would win. Do you see any election denialism about to rear its head about the Arizona or Nevada Senate results? It doesn't seem to be happening around the country where Republicans lose. But I see Blake Masters says he won't concede, lest I saw, and will wait until all the votes are counted. But even that is still sort of within the realm of hardball, no- hardball normal uh, if he doesn't start making stuff up. That's right. And what we've seen across the country is that uh, these candidates are conceding and things are going in sort of orderly, normal fashion. Uh, even, you know, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania has admitted he lost the election. Uh, and broadly across the board, almost all of these candidates are are conceding the elections that they've lost. As you say, uh, Carrie Lake is very is sort of a leading uh, proponent of the the stolen election claim. So and 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 that race is extremely close. Uh, and there were some issues on election day with the administration of it. So we'll see if that turns into some sort of debacle. Uh, but I think, you know, what, what we saw even with Trump was that these are very hard claims to make if you don't have a uh, very strong sort of public backing uh, behind you to sort of give you that megaphone. Uh, you can claim you won an election, you won all you you lost all you want, but if if nobody cares, it, it sort of doesn't matter. So uh, I think, you know, democracy won in the larger sense, uh, not just because voters rejected uh, anti-democratic candidates, uh, but because the, the, the workings of democracy seem to be uh, a lot healthier than I think a lot of people have, uh, had feared. Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time with us. We'll get to a couple of phone calls at 212-433. WNYC 212-433-9692 or tweet at Brian Lehrer. But let's turn now to the Senate itself. Um, do Does Schumer get any credit for holding the Senate? Does McConnell get any blame? Yes and yes. I mean, I think we're seeing that already. Uh, I think uh, certainly there had not even prior to this, even when Democrats thought they might lose the Senate, there hadn't really been any uh, rumblings within the Senate Democratic Caucus uh, against Leader Schumer. He obviously won his reelection quite easily. Uh, And there were some tough results, as I'm sure you've talked about, in in, in New York for the Democrats uh, uh, that have caused a lot of recriminations in in state Democratic politics. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, I think in the broader sense, you know, Schumer obviously put up with a lot of drama from this 50-50 Senate. uh, And, uh, you know, things looked good at first with the passage of the American Rescue Plan. And then there was about a year-long stretch where all they did was fight and couldn't get Build Back Better over the line. And and then this year, it started to turn around. And there were a number of bipartisan bills passed uh, through the Senate. Uh, And so I think that gives Democrats a lot of uh, hope that uh, they can continue to get things done. Uh, Although it depends a lot on on what's going to happen in the House, and we obviously still don't know. Uh, In the Senate caucus, it has been quite remarkable to see, uh, because we so 
so rarely have seen any kind of dissent expressed uh, against uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, Trump has been agitating against him for years now, calling him names, urging Republicans to, to go against him. And it really hasn't happened until now. Uh, but, you know, losing really makes people think hard about these things. Uh, and we now know that, that you know, we had seen uh, Rick Scott, the head of the Republican Senate Committee, and McConnell feuding. Uh, all through this cycle over campaign strategy. Uh, Scott now uh, has has dropped his his potential challenge to McConnell, but you do have a number of Republican senators in the sort of Trumpist wing asking to delay leadership elections until we know the final vote count in the Senate, saying, you know, if Herschel, if Herschel Walker wins that election in Georgia, he should be able to, to vote in this election instead of having it held uh, this week, which obviously would mean he could not. Uh, and so I think there's going to be some, some interesting terms Turmoil within that caucus. Uh, not it, it. It pales in comparison to what's happening uh, among the House Republicans right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that you see, you know, uh, some some rumblings against McConnell in, a, in an interesting way. If McConnell turns out to be out as minority minority leader, or if he has has to um, fight to retain that position, who compete for that role? And with what agendas for change to try to win the next time, if that's clear at all at this early stage? It's not clear at this early stage. You know, as I mentioned, uh, Senator Rick Scott from Florida had been prepared to challenge McConnell, but uh, has backed down uh, in the face of these disappointing results. And I think, you know, within that Senate Republican caucus, certainly there are a lot more fingers pointed at Scott than there are at McConnell. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there no one has proposed to challenge McConnell directly. Uh, but you do have, you know, voices like Josh Hawley from Missouri uh, saying there needs to be, you know, some kind of change that you, because this has been, you know, a losing strategy, uh, they need to go back to the drawing board and rethink, you know, everything from from the sort of first principles of the ideology to campaign strategy and so on. Uh, so I think, you know, there may be a lively discussion. Uh, potentially, McConnell could even have to make a concession or two. Uh, but his, he's, he's, he's thought to be pretty secure. I think it's more significant just that uh, he, he has for so long had such tight control over that caucus that, that any suggestion that that's not the case is going to make it harder, uh, you know, for him to participate in negotiations and participate in governing going forward. Listener tweets, if it stays 50-50, don't be surprised if Manchin, Joe Manchin, conservative Democrat from West Virginia, switches parties. That would grant him more power. You think that's a possibility, Molly? It's hard to imagine how Joe Manchin could have more power than he already does, right? I mean, look at uh, the amount of influence that he had over the 50-50 Senate over the past two years. I mean, some people described him as uh, the, you know, the real President Joe, right? Uh, so I don't think he, and, and he's obviously had many opportunities, many, uh, a lot of encouragement from the other side uh, to make that switch. Uh, and he will eventually be up for re-election again. Uh, but I think it would have been much easier to imagine him potentially even being tempted to switch if Republicans had won the Senate, because then by switching, he would have had a shot at, you know, chairing committees. He would have been in the majority and be able to influence legislation in that way. Uh, at this point, you know, particularly if it's 50-50, every senator is the deciding vote and nobody has has maximized uh, the potential of that, the, the, the leverage of that position more uh, already than Joe Manchin. Yeah, so great I point. don't think that 
that the 50-50 Senate incentivizes him anymore. But one thing to speculate on, if the Democrats win Georgia, they will actually have one more vote than they did before. And that would mean they only need Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, not both, to do things like abolish the filibuster. So how big a deal is Georgia or not with control already assured? It is a big deal for that reason and also because uh, it, it gives Schumer more power to write the rules of the Senate. Uh, so, you know, majority is a majority, but 51 seats is is a much, interestingly, is a much, much bigger majority than 50 seats, uh, despite having the, the vice president's tie-breaking vote. So, but, you know, I think there it's it's really early days in terms of even thinking about uh what this uh, next congress is going to do simply because the results have have not been what really anyone was expecting and so they've sort of gone back to the drawing board for example there were a lot of things that democrats assumed they were going to try to stuff into the lame duck session because they thought they were about to to lose the majority uh now that that's not the case there's potentially more time in the coming term uh, to, 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 to work on those kinds of issues. Elizabeth Warren and maybe others are calling for an aggressive lame duck session now, that is from now till the end of the year before the new Congress takes over. Is there a chance to get something done now that they couldn't get done before the election? Well, sure. Uh, and there are things that they have to get done. There's government funding, uh, the debt ceilings coming up, and 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 various voices are calling for that to 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 be abolished or taken off the table. Uh, there's other fiscal deadlines coming up, so they have to do some things in the lame duck. Uh, but uh, you know the. Whether they decide to go big in the lame duck, as you said, as Senator Warren is suggesting, I think it also depends on what happens in the House, because uh, it, it, it appears all but inevitable that Republicans will take a very, very narrow majority in the House. Uh, but on the off chance that Democrats keep the House, uh, then, you know, once again, it means that the, there, there's less need to, to pack things into the lame duck session. Uh, but if we assume that Republicans are going to take the House, that that also throws a wrench into any grand plans that Democrats had for, for legislating. Uh, so, so we'll see. I think there's a lot of conversations going on right now, a lot of strategizing. Uh, and we're still waiting for these races to be called. Right. So the House could go either way, a few seats or a few seats one way or the other for a tiny majority for one party or the other. Last thing I'll say is that even if the Republicans win the House and Biden can get very little through Congress and the Democrats and the Republicans can't get much through Congress, I think it's really important for Biden's ability to get his choice of federal judges confirmed for the next two years, Supreme Court on down, depending on openings, uh, because he's got the Senate majority. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's potentially the most important aspect of keeping the Senate for the Democrats, because as we have seen in the sort of, you know, toxic and polarized climate of uh, today's U.S. Senate, uh, there's... The, nothing is the, the the opposing party doesn't give you anything. And so the Democrats have been very successful at making those appointments and getting those judges confirmed with a 50 50 Senate. And uh, I think the administration breathed a sigh of relief seeing the Democrats uh, keep the Senate pri primarily for that reason. Molly Ball, Time Magazine National Political Correspondent. Molly, thanks a lot for starting off our week. Thanks so much for having me. 
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.